If I have Graham Goodwin on the other end of the line, it must mean we're either talking shop about sports cars or about to record the two of us talking shop about sports cars in a little show we came up with called The Week in Sports Cars that, oddly, we do every week, Graham. Um, So what are we doing? Are we just talking shop or are we taking listener questions, rants, and you name it, and uh, preserving it in podcast form and presenting it to the world with the support of Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, and TorontoMotorsports.com. Well, with that level of support, it'd be rude not to, wouldn't it? Um, good afternoon, good evening, good morning, wherever you are in the world. When you're listening to this uh, MP across in the United States, I'm here on, at the moment, a very sunny uh, late afternoon just outside London. Um it's been another busy week of news. It's been another busy day of news, MP. Um, and we sit here between two racing weekends for IMSA. And as I kind of grind through the paperwork, ready to leave early next week for what will be back-to-back weekends for ACO rules racing at Monza for the uh, European Le Mans Series and the WEC. Uh, lots going on. News today about Spa 24, news today about the Le Mans 24 hours, um, all sorts. Uh, but let's hope that's reflected in the, again, monstrous inbox of uh, questions that have been brought to us by our listeners. Um, anything before we get into that that, that we kind of need to cover off today? Well, um, we were just talking, I know, very briefly about the uh, update that both of us have read and posted to our respective uh, client sites um, update on the condition, health condition of Alex Zanardi about a year after that awful accident for everybody's hero. Yeah, the only little bit of housekeeping is uh, my wife and I, well, I'll be taking my wife on a mini vacation be the first for her slash us and i don't know how long but uh it's her birthday vacation getaway we're gonna go up uh, the coast and uh spend some time looking out on the pacific ocean and just trying to enjoy a uh a quieter quieter however many days so gonna be gone for a little bit have a friend that's uh coming over he'll be uh staying and looking after the cats and whatnot but uh we'll be away for a little bit so not exactly sure what day next week we will be coming back, Graham. So since mm-hmm. there is that lack of specificity. Uh, That's a great word. I know. I just made it up or borrowed it from someone <laughs> smarter than me is. Uh, so since I'm not exactly sure when I'm going to be back home and back in the office, I've asked your fine self to find yep. a uh, a super sub uh, for me, I'm closing in. Not got a yes yet, but you know who I'm asking, and I think it's fair to say that we, if we can nail down uh, within the time scale we've got uh, this one, but if we get it as a yes, it will be within 24 hours of me talking into this microphone right here and now, and that is on Thursday evening. Uh, so expect a pretty early call for questions because it will be a pretty early recording for the weekend sports cars next week we will take some regular questions but as we did what was it three four weeks ago with ollie gavin um i'm closing in on um i think someone that lots of people would have lots of questions they'd like to ask uh, another scott tucker it's uh, not scott tucker oh. he's only allowed he's only allowed one phone call <laughs> 
<laughs> and it's and it's all yeah it's all collect i don't know if we could afford uh an hour plus call with uh scott as our guest but no, you know we, we can no. try um, we, did, we did say we, we did say we'd revisit this format and there will be other moments uh you, you, delighted to hear that you and Shabral are going to get some time away trudy and i actually now working on some plans for a much delayed family wedding uh my nephew and his absolutely lovely fiance that will require a bit of a road trip so that will be an opportunity for us to do one with you hosting it uh, when we get to late august and september after le mans uh but uh hope to bring you news and keep an eye out on twitter and keep an eye out on the marshall Pritt podcast facebook page for details of who that's going to be and when we need those questions uh, but I hope that'll be very soon indeed. But I think that uh, that all said, I think we crack on with questions now, don't we, for this week's edition? We do, and you decide where we start. Where do we go? It would be remiss and rude uh, not to start, I think, stateside this week. We've uh, just come out the sail in six hours of the Glen. Uh, the team's setting up or, you know, taking uh, blowing the dust off the... Uh, of the paintwork uh, for a second consecutive weekend at Watkins Glen with the WeatherTech 240. So let's start with IMSA. Ooh. And we're going to kick off with, let's go to Alex Eichmiller. And uh, Alex says, MP, last week you reflected on GTP being the golden era of American road racing and LMDH potentially being a new golden era. How do you think the DPI era will be viewed in the future? Oh, that's an interesting one, Alex. I think it will Isn't be... It? Rev- reviewed or or considered favorably but probably one that started out with a lot of momentum and maybe tapered off a little bit too much uh and i'd also say that you know i can only refer to the golden ears that i've lived through i know having read a lot of words and heard a lot of accounts from folks that can am trans am the 60s in particular but there's certainly been multiple golden eras in the 70s, IMSA as well, uh, with their GT racing products. And there's been a number of golden eras. That's been the great thing. It hasn't been exclusive. America Lamas series certainly had some gold in there and yada, yada, yada. But I think DPI will be looked back at with a favorable view. Would just say that it has been sad, though, to see that it did reach a peak of four constructors that or four manufacturers i could say with that uh extreme speed motorsports nissan thing which our man goodwin here broke uh the news on it wasn't as long lasting as we had hoped fell into privateer hands proved to be way too expensive so we've hovered at three for a little while now but now we have mazda downsizing to one entry and on their way out before the DPI era comes to a conclusion. So I will have fond memories of it. I will also be a little bit sad in thinking of how it had a brief burst of awesomeness and peakiness, but seems to have been uh, losing cars and or entrance and or and or um, consistently as it winds down. Yeah, I think that's fair enough. Uh, it's It did get momentum that just suddenly tapered out, didn't it? And, of course, the latter days of DPI been affected by the fact that something else is on the horizon and then the certainty that there's not going to be any money to expand it. Let's go to that other point. It uh, surrounds 
yellows, caution, safety cars, three different questions. Nikolai B, Richard Cooper, John Richter. Nikolai says, it's that time again, IMSA safety cars. When is IMSA going to realise the biggest issue facing them is the ridiculous and unacceptably long musical chairs procedures they have in place. Seems to come up after every endurer they do. Hashtag me personally, safety car procedures should not take longer to work through than the incident was called to be cleared. Hybrid of the CAMS protocol and Le Mans for pit exit management would be a preferred option. Richard says... What was the reason behind the 20-minute safety car following the United Autosports little spin? That would have been Austin McCusker's um, spin. Lost the front end of the tra- the, uh, the car in DPI traffic with uh, losing the, the air on the front of the car. Almost an un- immediate unassisted return to the track from Austin. Does the safety car driver have minimum drive time per race, he says. And John says... Why was the final yellow at the Glen so long? The stewards wasted laps trying to reorder the field and probably cost the dominant MSR car the win. So there's two specific points here, MP, but the wider point is what we keep coming back to is why does it take so long? Yeah, so they have the the short yellow and then I guess the standard yellow. And the short is, it's exactly what it's named. Uh, I think mostly what we're talking about here is the standard yellow. You throw in the fact that the track is, while the lap time is relatively short because they're going so quickly, uh, there's a fair amount of real estate to cover each lap. So under yellow conditions, that is certainly something to factor in. Like, hey, a single lap under caution, it takes a while. You then throw in the standard procedure of getting the field collected behind the safety car, getting prototypes to pit, go through their service, getting them back out on track, then getting the GT cars to go through their pit uh, sequence or pit procedures, then get them back on track. Then, whether it is pit penalties, well, I guess it, it would pretty much be all pit penalties or cars blending back in where they should or shouldn't be. You then have the rather unfortunate looking through what the kids did right and wrong and then trying to reorder things, in some cases assessing further penalties. <sighs> I, I am a, at a bit of a loss as to how this stops being such a thing. And I don't know if it's a thing, Graham, because more people are paying more attention and they're curious as to why there's a lot of downtime, or if this is just a normal thing that some of us just fail to adjust to and say, all right, this is just part of the game. I I know we've discussed this before on the show. I don't remember what my solution was previously. I think I might have had one. I don't now. But I can't disagree where when I see a caution come out in IMSA, it's happened in IndyCar too a couple times this year where you go, okay, that's going to take a a little bit to get cleaned up, but we should be getting back to green. And where did the last 10 or 15 minutes go? I don't fully understand. And it's the same. We need to reorder and shuffle and penalties and all kinds of stuff. It ends up being this long adjudication process seemingly. And if you're in a race that lasts two hours or less and you've just given up 20 minutes or whatever it is for something that seems kind of trivial, like McCusker's crash, I would get really angry. If it's in a six-hour race 
not saying it makes it better, but at least you have more racing left, so you're not consuming a big percentage of the uh, the racing time made available for our entertainment. I'm not totally sure what the the best solution is here, because if you take what they did, the time from a Cusker to reverse or turn the car around and get going again didn't take an exceedingly long amount of time i understand the desire for a caution but would that be a local caution uh would that be something where you give yourself 30 seconds in terms of decision making process or 60 seconds where you throw an immediate local yellow which forces all cars to slow down and again imsa could I'm, I'm sure come up with some sort of replica for a, a, a automated, not, I wouldn't say automated uh, safety car uh, type scenario, but uh, Hey, everyone's on their pit speed limiters from this turn to that turn. The minute the local yellow comes out to give IMSA whatever time you might think, Graham, 30 seconds, 60 seconds to assess. Can this driver, pull away and remove the need for cars to slow down in the area? Will that give us enough time to look at the barrier, for example, and see if some damage was done there? I mean, these are the two things you would think would tip a series into saying full course yellow, full elongated pit procedure, which is, again, going to burn up multiple laps, uh, and in this case, a lot of time. That's the part I'm, I'm maybe a little bit curious about in terms of evolution and development here. Because this complaint, and I don't take this as an a, unfounded complaint. I, too, raising my hand, have yelled at the TV more than once uh, at however many IMSA races over the last couple of years of like, come on, what are we, do- I mean, what are we doing? I just wonder, in the absence of a clear visual cue that, holy cow, Big crash, parts and pieces all over the place, potential driver injury. You know, this is something we need to take seriously. We need to bring the race down, focus on the incident, and, hey, we're going to get to pit procedures and all that stuff in a minute. It's going to be a little while. The severity of the crash tells us this is warranted. I do wonder, though, Graham, if there's just another option they might create for themselves, if they don't already have it, to say, hey, we're going to keep our finger off the uh, the big yellow button uh, on the desk and try and get feedback from the local marshal's post, whatever number of stations, the TV, right? Hey, we're watching to see what is happening here. Is there an in-car camera that they can plug into and watch right away? What kind of things can be done to determine if the big stop the show for a long time Go get a snack, walk the dog, take a nap, and uh, call this number, and we'll ring you back when the race is about to go green type uh, support system. Or, hey, okay, looks like Austin kind of got himself uh, handled on his own. Barrier doesn't look like it's particularly deranged. Let's get back to racing and remove those local yellows. So... It's that assessment scenario that I wonder if it's worthy of further evolution by the series. It might already be there, though. 
and they decided, hey, car crashed, and we're just going to go to yellow and err on the uh, err on the side of safety and maybe be surprised if we didn't actually need to do that. Okay, um, let's move on. Stuart Hart says, with all the hypercar and LMDH talk, have Corvette Racing been left high and dry by GM Pratt & Miller, arguably the best sports car team on the planet, yet here they are with huge uncertainty of the level of competition in IMSA's GT classes, no guarantees of a future Le Mans GT entry. Should we assume Corvette been in discussion with ACO and IMSA regarding consolidating the future GT regulations with IMSA's 20, uh, 2022 GTD Pro class regs set to be adopted by the ACO, maybe? What do you reckon? I, I can't conceive that we would have IMSA moving forward without the Corvette brand, because as you've correctly said, their value to the literal butts on seats and therefore the viewing eyes on the TV is pretty strong i'm not totally grasping the the genesis of the question here Stuart. i understand the questions that you've sent in but knowing that corvette racing will be competing in gtd pro next year and for years to come knowing that they will not be building a bespoke gt3 version a a totally new car gt3 version of the c8 knowing that they will be detuning the existing gtlm slash gte pro model to compete in imsa while giving itself the much easier uh, ability to undo those changes and go compete at le mans and any other places where gte pro uh, contests are held I guess I'm not seeing the high and dry part or the uncertainty or anything else. Um, Knowing that they will be racing an IMSA in GTD Pro, limited to GT3 cars, with a waiver to use their GTLM machinery, I can only imagine the ACO will continue to extend invites to one of its most popular entrants. Uh, that has become, you know, truly bedrock part of the event for the last 20, whatever number of years. So I guess I don't really see where the concern or questions are. Uh, We're going to see these vehicles for many years to come doing what they do, looking almost identical to how they do right now, and getting to see them play in both of the world's dominant uh, high-level GT uh, categories. So I think we're all good there. Uh, As for the ACO adopting GTD Pro, you'd have to think that GT3 regulations would be on the horizon at some point, but that would be more of Graham's expertise as for if and when. Uh, Well, we'll come to that one, uh, uh, I hope. I think we may have a question this week that gets closer to that. Let's move on to George Falter, halfway point the season can you rate mazda racing's chances of actually getting it done and winning the WeatherTech championship they have a 47.3 percent chance and i'm so glad to announce that george uh kidding aside <laughs> well there's always there's one thing that tends to dictate this uh and then there's another part we need to consider one balance 
du performance. Um, BDP, Boogie Down Productions. There you go. One of my favorite hip hop groups. Um, good old balance performance. Um, do they get probed by the BOPness of changes uh, coming to uh, hinder their pace and possibility of winning a championship? Don't know. But as we have seen countless times in this DPI era, uh, where BOP has been at the heart of how cars go racing, the good old numbers on who gets heavier or lighter, who gets more power, who gets more fuel, less fuel, etc. Uh, these things are often not totally decided by the uh, rule makers, but certainly shaped, I would say. So to answer the, the first part of the question, chances are great if they are not burdened by uh, highly negative BOP decisions. The, I mean, they've been consistently fast, obviously winning this past weekend, amazing for them yet again, too. Watkins wins in the span of three years. Uh, I guess we could also, well, anyways, pretty amazing with that. The only downside, the only thing that concerns me is they've got one bullet. They have one vehicle for the full season. I realize that if we look at all the other entrants, all the other champions in past years, obviously the championship is won by a single entry. If we look at, say, Wayne Taylor Racing, they have never, they're not a two car team. They've always been a single entry. They have had stable mates, though, and not as if their stable mates have wanted to help, but there have come times where the manufacturer has said, look, whether it's a Cadillac or an Acura, um, there's been some semblance of we're trying to support the bigger picture here. And if you could, by chance, take points away from those who are threatening us, please do so. With a single entry, Mazda is truly on its own. Once again, I just I don't want to overstate that with other brands with multiple entries, whether it's pure factory or factory plus customer cars, I don't want to overstate like the rest of the cars not in title contention just become playthings to get in the way, interfere, or otherwise to assist in that title bid. But there is a little bit of a, hey, you're out on an island here. <laughs> There's no opportunity for a sister car to uh, assist or improve your odds of getting to the championship. So that's the only downside that stands out here, George. They need to be perfect going forward. And if they were to have a bad day, could a sister car then, hopefully with a strong finish, limit the damage by taking points off of one of the rivals? It's not an option this year. So I would love the idea, though, Graham, and I would have to imagine many fans of IMSA uh, would love the idea of Mazda saying farewell, bidding adieu with a title in hand. I wouldn't do a thing to get them to stay. But it sure would be pretty cool for them uh, to at least leave with a prototype championship. So um, I got a quick suggestion, and we have mm -hmm. a number of other uh, fun IMSA questions here, which could take us an hour or more to <laughs> answer. Uh, why don't we move on to another category? And if there are any questions that folks uh, really wanted answered... 
Uh, maybe we can get to them next week or the week after because there's going to be a little bit of a break until the next IMSA event. Let's do that. Let's go to uh, Weck Aslam's Elms and Echo. We're and doing that. And this is that. where I hand, over, I hand over the baton to you, my friend, and um, we'll see what gets chucked my way. All right, time for me to put the uh, leash around your neck. Uh, ah. Stephen Gate. This is Graham. You mentioned last week that Ferrari are not as far down the road with their hypercar as rival OEMs are with their own LMH projects. Does this extend to potential drivers as well? Or do you know of any potential Ferrari factory drivers that have been sounded out? Maybe even agreements made. I think it's a bit early for agreements to be made. And let's say there is the longest queue in the world at the moment is the queue of people that would like those drives. Uh, so I don't think I think this if you're developing a new car, I think it's fair to say if you look at the example of what's going on with Peugeot and there's plenty emerging from that program ahead of the reveal of what I can tell you will be a spectacular looking uh, car uh, that comes next week on Tuesday. You'll see that car for the very first time. Those drivers have been working with the team on ergonomics, on simulator work, etc., for under a year before we see that car ready to go into testing. Ferrari have got a little while yet before they have to get onto that same train. Um, there is some smartness in seeing exactly what everybody else is actually doing against those regulations so that you can learn from what they're doing or for that matter what they're not doing so is the prevarication to do with uncertainty is it to do with anything other than uh just due diligence of putting forward that program well it will be a little bit of hashtag wait and see on the driver front though um no, I don't think there's anything to, to worry about or to report at all. It's pretty clear they're taking a look at um, a number of their existing drivers, a number of young talents that are coming through uh, with their teams, their partner teams, etc., etc. There's some interesting machinations going on at the moment with um, at least one of their customer teams. Very interested to see today the news that uh, Iron Links were partnering with Prima, mm. two big Italian teams making one almighty Italian team. Um, lots of reasons why that makes sense to do with their current programs. But for me, MP, and you know, we, we're not talking here about a potential factory effort, but potentially a customer effort, I'm guessing. Doesn't it make sense for a team like Prima, who operates up to and including F2, uh, not to want to hand over their carefully cultivated, uh, highly moneyed uh, customers and their backers to a Formula One team to pick up the baton. Wouldn't it be more sensible if there's an option to give those highly talented people who come with big budgets an opportunity to spend that money in-house with the same team? That, to me, uh, right there, looks like the building blocks for something that is intended to do something more than GT uh, racing. There we go. Uh, Stathis Coco, how you doing? I'm in hey. love with my Coco. Uh, is it too <laughs> early to talk about Alpine? Continuing with their LMP1 maybe next year as well? Because the BOP <laughs> seems to be uh, spot on with the Toyota so far. Um, we know the only issue, which is not easy to fix, I guess, uh, I'm sure if they want to continue in 22 with a promise for an LMH in 2023, would that maybe do the job? 
I think the answer is very simple. If they commit, if Alpine commit to any kind of program, whether it be LMH or LMDH, I'm pretty certain that the sun would shine upon the prospect of the uh, Signatech Alpine, uh, the ex-LMP1 car, um, staying for another year. But unless they commit, I don't think there's any chance whatsoever. The, the messaging that I believe has been passed both publicly and in private between the ACO, WEC, uh, and Signatech, the team operating and pushing for this project, and for that matter, Renault Group and Alpine, their brand, is you commit and we'll meet you halfway. If you don't, it's one and done. I think it's really that simple. And for what it's worth, I think that's the correct answer. I think that is exactly the way it should be. There has been time enough for Renault to make that determination, that decision. They're seeing the other teams and organizations that are committing. There is a rule book that allows them two completely different opportunities to come and play. I'm not sure what else you could do to persuade an OEM to come and play at the top end of sports car racing right now. So it comes down to one simple question. Are they interested or not? And I think we'll find that out pretty quickly. We'll have to find it out um, if they're going to be uh, continuing in 2022 um, pretty soon. Uh, I would say weeks and months rather than months and years, uh, because clearly the door is going to close to the 22 season rather more quickly than a new car would appear for 23. I'm going to go to, where do we go? A couple of porker questions here. Matthew License and Chris Ward. Matthew says Porsche want to be testing by the end of the year for their LMDH. Would they possibly look at doing a WEC round towards the end of 22? Or are they just going to wait until 23? Um, you know a bit more about this one than I do. I'll have just one thing here. We may well see uh, LMDH cars, the Porsche, the Audi, maybe, appearing sooner than perhaps people think. But they're not going to be quite race-ready, are they? Uh, now, I know this not through uh, Porsche, not through Audi, but through other industry sources. The one thing that absolutely is not ready yet is the hybrid system. Yep. Um, so whatever they're going to be testing with, it isn't going to be the spec hybrid system. So um, that's a bit of a kind of an unknown quantity in terms of time frame. Anything you can add? Cause I know you've been, you talked to Pascal Zalinden last week, uh, MP. Yeah, they're still hoping to get the car out uh, around Christmas time. That'd be amazing. Did say, without putting a lot of specifics on it, that the car is headed to America. Um, we would expect them to go to tracks that would be relevant to their 2023 factory campaign. So a Daytona visit, a Sebring visit, a add some other rounds uh, or other places... Add some other places to that. Here's what I'm wondering. If the car is indeed capable, coming together in time, to do a Christmas-ish shakedown in Vysok, which he said the car will be testing, obviously not with the official KERS system, because that won't be ready until, again, estimate, late first quarter, somewhere the second quarter next year, hopefully before June. It will be testing with their own version. I, I don't have any details as to who made it, etc. but Pascal did say that, because uh, I asked him specifically, hey, 
the one thing that's going to be keeping a number of manufacturers from testing is the lack of the KERS system. And he said, no, uh, what they, they will be testing with one. It won't be the race version. So again, not as if they don't have a lot of experience with that uh, in prototypes and even GT cars. So uh, not a real question as to whether they have the resources or knowledge how to come up with one of their own just purely for testing purposes. But assuming everything is coming together on that late December timeline, if not a little bit earlier, would it be strange, Graham, to think that with the Rolex 24 coming in January, there might be some sort of showing the world uh, coming out party. Look at our new hot rod that'll be racing here in one year's time. I'm not saying they would. I don't have knowledge that they would. I just think the timing is something where it leads me to think that that could be an option. If this late December thing happens in Vysop, I'd have to think they would be getting the car over here soon-ish to start its testing. And if it's going to be here, there's a lot of ifs stacked on top of ifs. But if they're going to be here with a car in January and this, this timeline doesn't slip, I don't think it'd be crazy for someone to say, well, hey, this is the big opening to the year's international endurance racing. And I realize mm-hmm. there might be a Dubai this month. Look. Rolex 24 is the big opener every year in January of the uh, the, the big uh, global endurance calendar. I would say it'd be a, a silly thing, if not almost a, a failure to have a proper imagination. Uh, if the car was ready and in the States, to not make sure it would be at Daytona for uh, a demonst- whether it's demonstration laps or just static sitting on display. I don't, again, I don't know, but uh, that's the kind of thinking I would be doing. Seems to make sense, doesn't it? What, whatever uh, comes out of this, and certainly there's going to be an awful lot of testing required, not just for the factory, but also the other part of the equation once we get to the stage where homologation is nailed in, and that is the balance of performance process. Uh, which is going to be required for those cars. So I think we're going to be pretty familiar with the look of these cars long before we actually ever see them liveried up and on a race grid. Uh, but it's it's worth saying, MP. I mean, you know, I obviously track the kind of level of interest there is in what it is we publish on Daily Sports Car. I know that um, the guys at Racer do the same. Uh, I'm seeing some pretty extraordinary numbers at the moment in terms of people turning our way and looking at the stories as this tale starts to emerge with big names coming forward. And, you know, whenever we write anything that uh, talks about the potential for something new in this class and, you know, whether or not it's IMSA, whether or not it's WEC, whether or not it's both, uh, and particularly the Blue Ribbon races, that it is, there's no doubt whatsoever that this golden era is drawing in new readers, new interest, uh, from the fan bases, from the industry, from drivers, um, it's that's the reason why I think this is going to this is going to keep us very very busy for for some years yet, uh, isn't it? But um, as for the the Porsche thing, it's universally good news. The Audi program that will follow, it's been slightly slower burn, but make no mistake, the commitment I think is going to be pretty similar uh, with joint WC and IMSA programs for both makes. Um, and then beyond that, we look into just exactly what's 
what kind of customer interest there is, and my understanding is that is high. The one thing they don't have at the moment is the cost of a car. Uh, and that, uh, once I think we've got that, I think you'll start seeing some names emerge that will put even more smiles on fans' faces and, for that matter, championship organisers' faces because I think we're going to see multiple customer cars from multiple brands on those grids. Here's a fun trio of questions. <laughs> uh, Matthew Schroyer leads us off mm. saying, so Aston Martin participates in the ACO's <laughs> hypercar rulemaking process, makes a big deal about entering the WC, but pulls out and announces it's selling the car anyways and tells the press it will lap uh, Le Mans in three minutes and 20 seconds. Did the ACO insult mm. Aston's mother? Did Aston kick the ACO's dog? What on earth is going on here? Otter FR adds, why is Aston Martin suddenly hyping the Valkyrie project on the Twitters and the interwebs with Nikki team reacting to that? And then we have one more from Matthew License. Um, I'll actually throw Matthews in at the end because it's a really interesting thought provoker. But uh, what what's going on here, uh, Graham? Well, for those that haven't caught up with it, what this is is Aston Martin revealing their Valkyrie AMR Pro. Now, they already had revealed the Valkyrie AMR Pro um, a couple of years ago at the Geneva show. This isn't that. What this is, is effectively a more powerful, more aerodynamic, or more extreme uh, aerodynamics uh, version of what undoubtedly was the Multimatic built um, hypercar, but was quite right, withdrawn as a prospect for the WEC as Aston Martin flailed uh, to find a solution to its uh, its financial woes. And that came courtesy of Lawrence Stroll and the backers that he brought with him into the company, which, of course, also meant that the brand went to Formula One rather than to Le Mans. Um, where do we start with this one? First things first, there's no doubt about it, that car is a very handsome-looking car, and the class will be the poorer for it not being there. First thing to say. Uh, a very good-looking car indeed, and I've seen comments, and I agree with them, that's what people thought that hypercar was going to be. It defined it. Um, the second point is the comparisons with certainly lap times at Le Mans, I think, are utterly tone-deaf. I, I expected better from friends at Aston Martin um, to leave a competition but then try to trade in on the heritage of what the other cars have done because you've got heritage at that event, having pulled out your efforts to go to someone else's championship, frankly, I think that's just tone deaf. Oh, sorry, tone deaf, uh, it's, yes. It's just, it's, not, it's just not the way you do it, is it? Um, I completely get it that the people involved in this program, it was not their choice not to do it. That, that was a, uh, above their pay grade. But somebody has thought it was a great idea to put a lap time in for those cars that um, you know is intended to leave people with the 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 impression that this car is quicker than the existing cars at Le Mans. Well, frankly, so would those cars be if they didn't have to have the rules applying to them. So, sorry, but I think it's in marketing terms childish is the straight answer and i'll say again tone deaf um i 
I, I'm very sad indeed that Aston Martin are not being talked about as being potential entrants for uh, this championship. The question does occur, though, MP. Um, the only thing that Aston Martin now needs to do is to have someone wealthy enough to buy one of those cars, get Aston Martin's agreement that they can enter it, and then tone it down to the regulations, re-homologate that, rather homologate that car, and that car could be raced. There's nothing to stop someone from doing that. Am I aware of anybody that might want to do that? I'm genuinely not, is the straight answer. But it's not that big a stretch, is it, when you talk about the people with the kind of level of wealth that would be required to buy and maintain those kind of cars. So, you know, the door might be open just a crack because there is now a car capable of doing it, but it would require some considerable investment in, you know, effectively a it's a it's a different um, spec of powertrain. It would be ha- it would have to have a different aerodynamic configuration. But you've got to believe that that's already been designed for the original car anyway. Um, Aston Martin not out of the woods yet. Uh, I believe there's some more uh, pain to come with the Valkyrie and Valhalla projects. The we've already seen the legal action we talked about on last week's show. I think there's more to come in that kind of uh, arena. I hope it plays out very positively for a brand which I'm very fond of. Uh, I've enjoyed uh, watching and talking and writing about their exploits at the races that I adore. And I know that everybody that listens to this show does as well. I just wish they were in the mix uh, as a factory. Um, you know what? It's, a, it's Oddly enough, it comes down to another statement made by another individual who, oddly enough, had a, a link in to the, the origination of this project. That's Andy Palmer, when he said, words along the lines of, where with, when he was uh, head of the Nissan uh, company, as they uh, went down their way on the 2015 program in LMP1, that they were going to go and win Le Mans. Um, wasn't going to happen in year one. <sighs> I think he probably regretted those words. It was one of those things that was repeated back to him ad infinitum. I I hope that actually those that put the words in and chose that lap time um, learn to regret that. Uh, it wasn't very smart. It, it it has irritated a lot of people. It may well be that it's got them to put people's names on checks if they still do those sorts of things, probably big bank drafts now. Um, but the reality is, tone deaf is the way i'm gonna uh, repeat it and frankly anybody that asked to martin asked me to a face you'll get exactly the same answer it was tone deaf uh it's not the way you play those games no one made you pull out uh of that race from the racing organizations it's not their fault show a bit of respect for the fact that those rules were written to accommodate you uh, you've then pulled out um and by the way if the car applied to the rules, it would be exactly the same kind of performance uh, as the Toyota. I have no doubt as the Peugeot. And I have no doubt uh, the Ferrari when we get it. And I have no doubt as well the LMDHs when they come too. So trying to tell us that your extremely expensive car that's got roughly double the power that those cars will have is quicker than them. Come on. Play school stuff, isn't it? Why don't we go with Matthew's item to close this thread here. He says, if Matt Aston had not originally committed to hypercar, how do you think the class would look right now, Graham? He says, do you think the original Glickenhaus uh, with Alfa Romeo deal um, with branding could have gone forward? Do you think LMDH might have been pushed through quicker? 
it's a, it's a really interesting one because Aston Martin it, it was is. the big. Sh- we knew Toyota was going to stay, so that wasn't so much a point of attraction to grow LMH. Aston Martin saying we're in and look at this beautiful, swoopy, amazing thing uh, that yep. did set folks' imaginations alight. Um, what if they hadn't? How do you? Th- what do you think we'd be looking at right now? Well, I think you'd be looking at probably LMH not happening is the straight answer. I think that's the point here is it needed that second big name uh, to sustain it. And you know, there is a, a very open question. Number one, if, if LMH had happened, there's a plus and a minus there. It would have probably happened with cars that were somewhat more capable than the cars we've currently got. Uh, because one thing that uh, accommodating the Valkyrie did, again, as we've said on Twist before, effectively what that gave them was the prospect that you could have three different kinds of car. A prototype-based car, hello Toyota, a road car-based car, and a Valkyrie. Because you look at the, the Aston Martin Valkyrie, it's not a road car as we know it. It's very much more aerodynamic-dependent uh, than most even hypercar road cars so it it did kind of queer the pitch didn't it really for the 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 kind of the way in which the the rule book evolved what it also did though is it did oddly enough give us one opportunity and i don't know whether or not this would have happened which was because you needed to slightly i'll say it dumb down the regulations the point where the cars are heavier they are slower that put it closer to the window where lmdh and convergence was more of a possibility so think about it in those terms for a moment um i'm not saying that's absolutely the case i wasn't in those rooms but it did give the window uh, sorry narrowed the window didn't it that meant that you had to move less to make an lmdh and an lmh broadly speaking, in the same kind of performance window. Would that have happened if the Toyota was, I don't know, 80 kilos lighter or, you know, with another 150 horsepower? I'm guessing it possibly would have been rather more difficult or they'd have been making those changes a little bit further down the road. Um, You know, beyond the kind of the irritation caused by a couple of sentences in a press release, I've no particular problem with them actually marketing a car they've already spent money designing. Don't mind that at all. What I mind is the assumed heritage. It's cultural appropriation is what it is. There we go. Uh, Let's see. Where else do you want to go here, Graham? I think we might, I don't know, probably got 10 or 15 minutes left. I don't know if you want to keep going here or if you want to dive into something else as Rocky is telling me it's time to feed him. Um, tell me what we're doing, my friend. Hello, Graham Goodwin. Can you hear me? I can now. Uh, my apologies. Uh, Stuart Hart's question there, MP, about the expanding size of the WC grid if LMDH delivers is quite an interesting one. Yeah, let me uh, scroll up there. He says, don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but doing some back-of-the-envelope calculations. I have the 2023 WEC hypercar grid at 16-plus cars. There's potentially more the following season. Uh, so how do you square this with an approximate 34-car grid limit? Higher fees maybe to cover increased transport costs. Also worth mentioning with uh, Stuart's reference to the hypercar grid, that's not mm-hmm. specific to LMH. That's no. using the nomenclature uh, the WEC is going with where they want to refer to 
LMHs and LMDHs as all one thing as hypercars, which IMSA, by the way, is not doing. Yeah, correct, Amondo. Uh, I think the answer there is, Stuart, quite correct. The the, the maths are, or I'll translate that for American listeners, math. Um, the, it is interesting, but it assumes that everything else in the uh, WEC universe stays broadly the same, and I think that's probably not the case. We do not know yet what the decision is going to be about GT. We don't know whether or not there is going to be a pro GT class in the WC moving forward. We don't know whether or not we'll have accommodation for GT3 and or GTE and for how long. We don't know either um, what the future is at the moment for the current LMP2 cars or indeed when the new LMP2 cars will come. So I think before we get to that determination about 34 cars or whatever, you'd need to kind of take a step away from it and think what might the supporting cast look like? Who from the LMP2 grids might actually be in the hypercar um, group by the time we get to 2023 and 2024? That that might start to answer some of those questions. The final point I'd make is this. If you are looking at a grid that might be bigger than 34, for the sake of arguing, in part that could be helped by the fact you've got multiple, multiple factory teams, which means that some of your transportation uh, costs could well be um, not dramatically cheaper, but certainly not much more expensive. You know, hiring a third freighter, um, air freight, um, to actually t- take you might very well be offset by the fact that most of them are going to be full of factory cars. I think there's there's a lot to emerge about the supporting picture for the WEC in particular. The announcements I'm expecting at the Le Mans 24 Hours in the traditional Friday press conference are going to be very, very interesting indeed to do with uh, GT and to do with LMP2. What's coming? When is it coming? Is it pro, pro-am or am? Those are the kind of questions that are going to define the answer to your question, Stuart, but it's a, a fine question. Where do we go from here, my friend? Have a quick look at a couple more little further down. Uh, Daniel Summerskill, never heard of him. Um, with more LMH cars in 2022 and LMD Husky on the horizon, who, out of the current LMP2, LMP3 GT drivers, are the most likely to make the step up to the top class? We've already got a couple of them doing it, haven't we? With uh, Mikkel Jensen, who's already on board with uh, Peugeot. Uh, Gus Menezes, obviously, is with Peugeot and, and with Glickenhaus this year. There will be more, I've no doubt, at all. You've got the likes of Nick de Vries. You'd have to imagine that somebody's going to be looking at that young man. Uh, you've got the likes of uh, Jov van Utet, uh, who certainly I know has been um, talking to and has been uh, has been uh, been talked to by a number of prospective uh, teams. There's a lot of people in the upper echelons of GT racing, whether or not that's GTE or indeed uh, GT3, that uh, I think would as well be uh, on the 
shopping list for them. I mean, looking beyond people like Nick Tandy and Neil Bamber have already got race-winning experience in LMP cars. Look at the likes of Kevin Estra, who's just stellar at the moment. I'd be amazed if he didn't get an opportunity to show what he could do at the wheel of a Porsche prototype. It's certainly what Porsche did with the 919, tested a number of their GT races and found some answers they weren't expecting. So if the teams and the manufacturers are smart... There's lots of ways in which they can do it. And as we move forward, even from the LMP1 hybrid era, the level of technology now involved in simulation is such. I don't think there will be terribly many surprises uh, when you actually finally put some of these guys at the wheel of the car. Uh, we are seeing a number of, uh, of drivers uh, either putting themselves in a position to try out an LMP2 car, for instance, or being put in LMP2 cars to try out. Uh, and I think that's going to continue. I found that kind of quite exciting to see what the likes of Kelvin van der Linde, uh, Nicky Team, you know, the, the likes of those guys, Tom Blomqvist, um, you know, getting aboard LMP2 cars and and just seeing where they stand in the the, the orbit of the, the established players there. I think you're going to start to see the the musical chairs will start, I would reckon, in about six to 12 months for most of these programs. Uh, you're going to start to see some of those names emerging. And I hope and expect that that will include some starry-eyed youngsters for most of the uh, the major factories. There are a number of people I expect to be on those lists, like Robin Frines, for instance, um, at Audi. Uh, as I say, uh, Kevin Estra, I'd be astonished if he wasn't given an opportunity to, to show what he could do at the wheel of a prototype. He's step ahead of even his teammates at the moment in a GT car. Anybody that you're looking at, MP, amongst the kind of, I mean, Kevin's not exactly the younger generation, but the, the non-established prototype players. Not at the moment. Uh not at the moment. I'll just leave it there. It's a great discussion point for the future. Coming from the American side, I think we're going to see some interesting developments here before too long. Uh, I think, mm-hmm. well, I know we're talking up and coming. We're talking some older drivers and other championships possibly moving over to uh, sports cars. I think we're going to see that. What I'm curious to observe and again, we'll, we can dive into this, to this deeper uh, in another episode, but we had a pretty cool stretch where a lot of younger drivers, commonly those who'd done whatever amount of open wheel, hit, the, hit a roadblock there, move over to sports cars. We had a decent amount of young talent coming into prototypes over the last, I don't know, decade or so, maybe more the last five, six years slowed definitely in that regard and i do wonder if we're going to see maybe a tiny bit of a reversal with some more senior drivers 40-ish plus possibly coming from indycar and who knows where else looking at prototypes here in north america as we have a ton of lmdh efforts uh, about to spark up and youth really filtering back in more heavily into open wheel we're seeing that this year where I think four of the top seven drivers in the IndyCar championship are 24 years old or younger. So, again, uh, let's do a deeper dive on this uh, sometime soon. But 
Yeah. Uh, don't oh, yeah. get me wrong. There are a lot of young names I'd love to see in uh, prototypes. Um, I think there are a lot of great, there's a lot of great talent that should be considered. But yeah, this LMDH thing, Graham, it's going to be fascinating because uh, whereas GTE Pro slash uh, GTLM programs going away has put a lot of crazy high caliber drivers on the market, some of whom are still searching for full time employment. Uh, you want to talk about vacuuming up uh, any and all available veteran talent um, coming here with LMDH? I think it's going to be a stampede of hiring um, and a lot of talented folks, some who might be younger and getting a shot, uh, but I don't think we're going to yep. see a huge wave of youth being embraced to lead uh, factory programs. So anyways, fascinating topic. Um, how much longer we got, fella? Because a couple more in this section I've just spotted that could do with a quick spin through them. But how long we got? Uh, why don't we just close the show with uh, sticking with Weck Asm Elmsaco? We're just past an hour, so um, so okay, why, well, why what don't I, you what close? I'll do is what I'll do is we will uh, hang on to a couple of the ones from this week because it will be a very early week if I get the right guest. Um, it'll be a very early week's recording, so I'll hang on to the remaining general ones here. A couple of things here. Stephen Gates um, uh, asking about the Peugeot. Are we safe to assume has gone down the outlandish and striking route, which is what I wanted from Hypercar? I can tell you, yes, you will be seeing something that looks nothing like anything that is currently out there. There is a particular striking feature of that car. I can tell you that. Um, look forward to that and keep an eye on Racer and on Daily Sports Car in the next couple of days. I've been working with young Stephen Kilby, and we've been sniffing out more before you see the car next Tuesday. And there's a couple of questions here to do with future calendar for the WEC. Matthew Lysons asking about Yas Marina. And uh, where are we? Mark Atkins asking about the Nürburgring. We know that they're looking to recover some of the ground lost in terms of adding dates um, to the WC calendar as we move through 21 into 22. I expect they're going to be taking a fairly conservative view on travel restrictions that we might have to see some flexibility in what's happening about where they'll commit to. Um, we are beginning to get to the stage where vaccination programs are making things easier. But I can tell you from the point of view of somebody who's traveling regularly, even in Europe, it is still not easy. We are still having to tightrope walk through regulations for each individual national border. So Nürburgring, I think every possibility that might be uh, something that we look at again. Yas Marina, I see no reason why not. Um, you know, Bear in mind, LLM now are going to be looking after the Asian Le Mans series as well. Uh, that's the part of the change in the management structure from ACO LMEM uh, with the departure of Seattle Teshvalen um, and with Frederick Lequian uh, taking over all three of the major championships now. I would be surprised if we didn't see uh, something happening in the Gulf with uh, either uh, Asia Le Mans series and or WEC that is more than we've previously had, perhaps for another year. Uh, it would be a very sensible thing to do rather than committing to somewhere that the moment is closed to us. Uh, I think Japan has just in, introduced three weeks hotel quarantine for coming in um, from various. Yeah. So it's, you know, it, it makes it impractical for people to do a variety of things. It's what's 
you know, it's beginning to show in terms of people's willingness to travel out of Japan, uh, amongst other things. So lots still moving. We're not through it yet, not by a long chalk, but there is, I think, at some point going to have to be a bit of a dam breaking about people's willingness to take risk and the preparedness of a variety of nations to deal with that risk. Um, it's fair to say that uh, motorsports, however important, it's not at the top of their minds, and quite rightly so. But yes, I think for the answer to both those questions, I'd be surprised if Nürburgring wasn't being looked at again. I'd be surprised if uh, the Gulf and the soon-to-be um, rebuilt uh, Yas Marina with three different parts of the circuit being um, being changed principally for Formula One, but I think that will have some positive effects for um, for ACO rules racing as well. And for that matter, the Gulf 12 Hours, which goes back there later this year, um, I think there'll be some positives there as well. So I think we can expect to see some new names on the WC calendar or some returning names. I say that from a position of absolutely no knowledge whatsoever. <laughs> Beyond that, though, um, look forward to Tuesday. Uh, it's always great when there's a, a new car and a significant new car uh, on the way. For now, this has been a pretty quick fire edition of the weekend sports cars. We'll bring you another one as soon as I can confirm, as I say, the guest we'll have for next week. Um, we'll get that onto social media. Thank you so much for providing again an entertaining and challenging set of questions for both myself, my learned colleague, uh, Mr. Pruitt, on the other side of the Atlantic. Uh, thanks. As always, to everybody that listens and downloads this podcast. And thanks in particular, of course, to Cooper Tyres, to the Justice Brothers, and to TorontoMotorsports.com. I've been Graham Goodwin. He's been Marshall Pruitt. This has been the Weekend Sports Cars, part of the Marshall Pruitt podcast. We'll see you next week. <laughs>